So a lot of the first consultation is around stopping people blaming themselves because people feel in some way that they're morally unsound or they're weak or they're hopeless because they haven't been able to keep the weight off. You'll find, I'd say, 98% of the people that I meet have managed to lose quite a good amount of weight over time with Weight Watchers or with Jenny Craig or just diet and exercise. But what the struggle has been to keep it off and they often feel very ashamed about that because we do stigmatise people who carry weight. Hey Refam, my name's Kate and welcome back to Keeping It Real, the podcast far more interested in health giving surgery than weight loss surgery. This week we're joined by the inimitable Professor Wendy Brown to tell us all about bariatric surgery. She runs us through the different types of weight loss surgeries, the reasons most people struggle to keep weight off once they've lost it, and why it's time to change the way we stigmatise obesity. Thank you so much for coming. So, Professor Wendy Brown, I was looking, doing my stock standard research, looking for everything I could on you, and I honestly could have been its own podcast episode. I think (laughs) you are on every, you're a director or chair of anything that could be. You've done over 100 peer-reviewed articles, got a private practice, you're um, head of, at the Monash of bariatric surgery, is it? No, I'm at Alfred Health. At Alfred. Yeah, I'm the... This professor of surgery for Monash University Department of Surgery at Alfred Health. Uh, Richard and I trained. Yes, right. Many years ago. She, that she was the smart one in the year. Yeah, yeah. You taught me everything I knew, Richard. <laughs> I hope there was more I than wish. one smart one in that. <laughs> no, we were it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're definitely the person to have if we're going to talk about um, bariatric. What um, kind of led you to go into that field when you were starting out? I think what really appealed to me was I do a lot of cancer work and the cancer work I do is mainly esophageal cancer, so Mm -hmm. cancers of the esophagus and the stomach, which are pretty brutal cancers, whereas and the bariatric surgery is sort of operating in the same area because we're operating on the stomach, but the people get these really positive outcomes where it really does enable them to change so many different things in their life. They get healthier, they get happier they're able to function better in the world. And so it felt like a really nice counterbalance, I guess, to the yeah. you know, really serious and quite sometimes, you know, not the greatest outcome cancers mm-hmm. to have this other area still operating in the same area where basically it was health giving surgery. I don't really see it so much as weight loss surgery, but health yeah. giving surgery. So it kind of gave me that nice balance of the, the positive with the tough, I guess. Yeah. Was that kind of just a natural progression as you went, that it just kind of, you just kept picking up bits until it evolved into what it, you're doing currently? Yeah, look, I think in life doors open and you sort of wander through them and then you realise, oh, I didn't, I didn't actively make that decision, but it's actually the right thing that I've done. Yeah. Uh, so, Wendy, so we've been doing um, this sort of in conjunction for uh, nearly 20 years. And from my point of view, I've, like, I've noticed a lot of change in the field. Um, I'd just like to, hear you know your perspective on what has changed and and the reasons for it and so I guess when we first started um, doing bariatric surgery 20 years ago and um, a lot of my patients who lose a substantial amount of weight um, ultimately need help with the sort of aprons of skin or the sort of parts under their arms and their legs that functionally make it hard for them to wear the clothes they want to wear or do the exercise they want to do so I rang up my favourite plastic surgeon and said, <laughs> I've got all these patients coming through and will you help me? And Richard had done a fellowship looking at body lift and body contour surgery, one of the first people in 
Melbourne anyway, if not Australia, to be doing that kind of surgery. So we sort of set up this um, pathway so that our patients kind of had a bit of a seamless pathway through if that's um, what they decided to do. Mm-hmm. They were mostly um, gastric bands, adjustable gastric bands, which are a wee device we fit just below where the stomach joins the esophagus. So the esophagus comes down and it hits the stomach and the stomach's like a big kidney bean, I guess. And we put a little band at the top of it so that food didn't go straight down into the stomach. It kind of went up and down a little bit and stimulated the the gullet into having to push as many times as it does for one mouthful of food as it normally would have to push for four. Right. So it kind of tricked the body into believing one mouthful of food is four mouthfuls of food. Oh, okay. And that was one of the first really popular bariatric procedures because we could do it through the keyhole. It was very safe and, you know, people lost a good amount of weight with it. Um, before that, the sort of procedures that were available really had to be done through big cuts in your belly from right. sort of your breastbone down below your belly button. They were, you know, massive operations where we removed bits of stomach or rerouted bits of bowel. And so often the risks of the surgery were more than the risks of carrying extra weight. So, yeah, right. you know, obesity surgery wasn't really popular, but the gastric band really revolutionised that because it showed us we could use minimally invasive techniques, we could safely do procedures, and we could offer weight loss that... Um, came with not too many side effects, although there were always side effects. Over time, the field has really evolved and now we do things like gastric sleeve operations, Mm -hmm. which is where we take that kidney bean stomach and we turn it into a little skinny tube. So people really can't eat as much and the food kind of rushes through that skinny little tube. And and I think it's a field that will continue to evolve as we look at things that we can even do through the mouth. So Mm -hmm. we can place devices inside the stomach or lining the bowel And ultimately, there's going to be more and more medications that will come to the market that address the reasons why people become overweight or carry extra weight into the longer term. And they're things that will help control appetite or maybe moderate metabolism. The good thing is now we've got lots of different options when we meet people. We can't, we don't, when we meet someone, don't just sort of say, well, look, you can have a gastric band or you can have nothing. You know, we have all these other different Mm. procedures that we can work with the, the person and see what suits them, what suits the sort of level of risk they're willing to accept, what sort of impact on their lifestyle they're willing to accept and what side effects they're willing to accept. When what are those factors? Like so when people come in and you're kind of looking at their lifestyle as a whole, is there certain things like if they're at this kind of weight but then, you know, if they have they're very active or whatever, what kind of plays into your decision making for which surgery they have? So, you know, I guess people put on weight it's very easy to put on weight yeah and it's very hard to lose it and um, I think anyone who's ever put on some weight will know how hard it is to lose even two or three kilos yeah. and if you've ever lost weight very quickly so let's say you've had gastro and you lose three or four kilos really quickly when your appetite comes back it comes back with an absolute vengeance you yeah. just feel like you can't stop eating so that's how people who have gained a lot of weight and lose a lot of weight feel all the time they're really hungry. Yeah, right. And hunger's a really primitive instinct and mm. only about 3% of people can keep a lot of weight off into the long term. So a lot of the first consultation is around stopping people blaming themselves because people feel in some way that they're morally unsound or they're weak or they're hopeless yeah. because they haven't been able to keep the weight off. You'll find I'd say 98% of the people that I meet have managed to lose quite a good amount of weight over time with Weight Watchers or with Jenny Craig or just diet and exercise, but what the struggle has been to keep it off and they often feel very ashamed about that because yeah. we do stigmatise people who carry weight. 
um, people with obesity quite a lot in our community. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about what their expectations will be, like what they hope will change in their life. Yeah. Because weight loss isn't a magic bullet. You know, you're not yeah. going to lose weight and magically get the boyfriend of your dream or the job of your dreams. Or um, it's it's just a health giving tool and it's a you know factor um, in I guess overall improvement in quality of life. And then we talk about what each of the operations are. And they've all got their good and bad. Like the gastric band's good because it's reversible and it's yeah. incredibly safe. And it's also very adjustable. So for people who might want to change the level of restriction they have over time, that could be oh, a good option. Okay. A gastric sleeve's totally irreversible and it has some higher upfront um, post-operative risks. Like yeah. um, if the staples don't fuse, you can get a leak. And oh. they're rare, but when they happen, they can be devastating. So for the person who gets them, they don't feel rare. They feel overwhelming yeah yeah. So, um, even if the know, chances are one percent if yeah, you're the one percent <laughs> you're the one percent you don't feel like the one percent yeah and then down the track there's some real issues with reflux and some nutritional issues to think about and with the bypass procedures again there's that slightly higher operative risk mm-hmm. but um it has the benefit of potentially being reversible in the future although that's another operation but for some people that reversibility is important yeah and it also carries a whole lot of other risks around bowel obstructions and what medications you can and can't take the band is probably the hardest to live with it's got the most dietary restrictions the um, bypass procedures probably have the least dietary restrictions although if you eat sugar you'll get something called dumping where you feel hot and sweaty and clammy and feel like you're going to be sick and um, if you eat fatty foods you get a lot of diarrhea and in between there is the sleeve in terms of you know what what you're able to eat and what you're able to do. So it's about teasing out what's important to that patient, how important operative risk is versus and how available they are for follow-up because all of these we see them as lifelong um, they're not they're a lifelong process, they're a lifelong journey, yeah. they're not just a procedure. But for the band you've got to commit to coming in once a month for the first 6 months, then once every three or four months till you're sort of stable with it. Mm-hmm. With the sleeve, we like to see you about every six weeks. Then once you're sort of comfortable with it, it might be six months and annually. And with the bypass, we need to see you fairly frequently, you know, every three months just to check your bloods, make sure everything's okay. And so there's sort of a requirement, a maintenance requirement for all yeah, of them. Right. And that has to fit in with people's lifestyles. So yeah. these are all things we ask people to talk about. Yeah. Another consideration is for younger people coming in you know, obesity is a chronic disease and it's something they're going to have to manage for the rest of their life, just like blood pressure or diabetes. And so maybe you don't want to start with a procedure that's like a bypass because if they get 20 years out of it, they still might only be 45 or 50. So where do we go from there? Now, the reality is probably there'll be other treatments by then, but if there's not, so maybe they need to start with something simpler. Other things that you think about is pregnancy because you know, fertility will improve usually with weight loss, but mm-hmm. you don't want to get pregnant in the first year because the baby can't be sustained while the mum's losing weight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've got to think about nourishment and how you nourish the baby. Would a fetus get enough nourishment if they did have the sleeve where they were getting a lot less food? Was that sustainable? Yeah, look, after, after a year, I mm-hmm. think, you, or usually when the mum's weight's stable, it's pretty safe, but we just need to make sure they really work hard with our team, with the dietitians and yeah. the physicians just to make sure they're getting enough protein and they're getting lots of um, vitamin B, iron, folate, all the good mummy vitamins. Yeah. And 
ideally it's a planned pregnancy so that you can stock up on all of those vitamins and really pre-prepare for it. Otherwise, the babies do tend to be born a bit small. And after bypass procedures, often the babies are born a little small. And so that might be another reason that I, well, personally, I'm a bit reluctant for women that are wanting to have a family to look at a bypass up front. Yeah, right. In terms of all of those different, do do you get a feel, because anecdotally I've, I've got a feeling, but do you feel one is more successful at or getting to a lower weight? I think, um, look, statistically, you know, the, the band probably has the least weight loss, but it's still people still lose 50% of their extra weight. Wow. Um, a sleeve, we're looking at about 55% of their extra weight. They'll usually lose a bit more in the first nine months and then regain a bit as the sleeve stretches up over mm-hmm. time. And the bypass, it's more like 60% extra weight loss. Out at five years, most of the proceed, most of the literature would suggest they're very similar out right. beyond five years because of the little bit of weight regain you get with the sleeve and the bypass, probably because the body adapts a little bit. But again, anecdotally, I would have to say in my patient cohort, I feel like the bypass patients are the most likely to get down to the lower weight. Yeah, because I've certainly seen... So when we first started seeing patients and they were, they were all lap bands... It was pretty rare to see anyone get a BMI below 30. So you, you yeah. would usually be 30, 31, 32. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now with the sleeves and bypasses, not uncommon to see certainly below 28 and, mm. and even below 25. Yeah. Whereas I never used to see that with a, a lap band. No, and if it was with a lap band, it's often because the band was too tight or because right. they were <laughs> vomiting a lot, which is yeah. not the way we want to induce weight loss. We want no. healthy, good weight loss. So. I think probably some of the hormonal changes that come with the bypass in particular really does have a very powerful effect on appetite suppression and also you don't absorb all the food you eat because some of the Mm. bowels bypassed. But, you know, the literature would suggest after five years they're all not that different and there's sort of five kilos difference between them Mm. all. But, you know, it's just – it's interesting because, you know, I haven't – it's been a bit of a shift in my practice. I used to think people had – I still think people have done great. If you've taken your BMI from 43 down to 30, that's amazing. Mm. You know, that's really healthy. And you've probably maintained your muscle mass and, you know, we haven't thrown you into starvation mode. You still get amazing health benefits. But I am sort of seeing more people with the sleeves and particularly the bypasses coming down to those sort of lower BMI ranges. We had um, a patient and she had weight loss surgery and then just, you know, she had nine kilos of skin so, like, from yeah. when she woke up from surgery, that was just nine kilos gone in one surgery. Yeah. And she was saying her son, um, which is kind of my next question, she, he had a lap band surgery initially and then went to the sleeve. They are like, all the words are messing, meshing together in my head, but I think that's what he did. Is that a kind of common step that people would go from a lap band to another is there kind of a threshold for that like you see after a year if it's working or is it usually um so yeah it's it's not an uncommon pathway so we've been doing the gastric bands i've personally for 20 years and paul o'brien's cohort's now nearly out to 30 years and i'd say we've probably converted about 30 percent of the patients now to another procedure it feels like after about 10 15 years there gets to be a bit of build-up under the band um, and it gets a bit tighter and harder to live with. Mm-hmm. And also maybe your esophagus has, gets a bit tired of all that extra contracting and doesn't right. kind of work so what well. What do you mean by build-up? Like what's um, built up? Just some scar tissue oh, under okay. the band. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, and I think realistically there is a lifespan for any 
operation, so like artificial hips, people have to have them done yeah. again quite commonly after 20 years and because your body changes and things happen. So it's quite you know frequent that we do need to move someone from a band to a sleeve or a band to a bypass and um, which operation we choose will depend on the reason why the band stopped working for that person. Very occasionally people just come and say, look, I'm just so sick of the dietary restriction, the band's worked well for me, I've you know, lost a heap of weight, love it, but my friend up the road's got a sleeve now and I can see yeah. that they can eat a better variety of food than me and that's the kind of thing what that I What can you eat with do. a lap band? You can eat most foods except for dry meat and white doughy bread, but you have to eat it incredibly slowly right? because it has to be able to get past that that pressure at the um, top oh. of the stomach. Yeah, And so a lot of foods do get stuck and if you at, oh. eat sub consciously and throw food down too quickly it gets blocked occasionally people come in and say look I just don't want to live with this thing anymore but Mm. and they want it usually they just want it out because they think they don't need it anymore then they come back when they've put on some weight and say actually I do want something else um gotcha because again you know those very basic mechanisms that drive our body to preserve our fat mass are still there even after 15 years I find it astounding even patients who my superstar patients who've lost and gotten down to a BMI of 28 I take out their band and they come back and see me and they've put on 10 kilos in you know two yeah. months and it's just amazing how powerful that physiology is mm. um, driving your body to try to replace those fat stores. Yeah, right. Uh, so as, with, as you alluded to, as with all surgery, there are um, potential um, risks and complications. Um, and so recently there was an article in the paper talking about some um, really bad outcomes from... Um, bariatric surgery. Um, do you want to just sort of want to make it all look like everyone loses fifty or sixty yeah. percent? Um, so I think it's important to, to sort of discuss some of the things and, yeah, and maybe what happens, how you intervene um, to, to fix them. Yeah, and I w- the last thing I want is for anyone to think that this is a you know a panacea. It's magic. It's not. It's hard work, and it's major surgery. And like any major surgery, it carries risks. So there's a risk of bleeding, infection, and blood clots anytime we operate. And when we reroute the bowel or remove the stomach, as I alluded to, with the sleeve and the bypass, where we make our joints or use our staplers, sometimes they don't fuse properly. and You can get what's called a leak, and that means the stomach contents coming out of the stomach and going into your tummy cavity, and you can get peritonitis and septicemia and get very, very sick with that, and it can be very difficult to control. Um, usually, you know, people present, you know, about five to seven days after the surgery and they just feel really unwell. They have fevers, feel like they're, vom- you know, you know, fevers, vomiting, lethargic. You know, it's pretty clear that they're unwell, but sometimes it can be more subtle than that. So it's really important to work with a surgeon that you trust and that has a good team around them so that if you're not feeling right after the surgery, you feel, you know, open and, um, I guess, have permission to call, you feel, you know, that that's because it's – we'd rather you call than not call. Yeah, we'd rather on. you over-call it than under-call it because, mm. you know, if we ignore things, things tend to be much harder to deal with. Um, you know, down the track there's the issues, as I mentioned, of nutrition and reflux. The reflux can cause damage of the lower end of the esophagus, which left unchecked for some people turns into changes called Barrett's esophagus, which are cells that can go to cancer. It's about 1 in 10,000 chance. But nonetheless, because of that risk, we are now recommending people have gastroscopes, which is a camera we pop down through the mouth to inspect the area every couple of years just to make sure there's no nasty cells there 
so that they can be scraped away if they're there. A bit like a pap smear, if you find the cells, you can scrape them away before it goes bad. Our registry of bariatric procedures would suggest that about 3% of people get a significant complication. So it's pretty low numbers, you know, 97% do really well, particularly given that a lot of the people we operate are on have relatively high risks of surgery just because of the weight they're carrying and the pressure yeah. it puts on heart and lung and reduces healing. Um, so it's it's pretty good 3%, but from a surgeon's point of view, we like 0%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a patient point of view, yeah. I bet. Yeah. That's what we're sort of always striving towards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because often they're the same patients that we're operating, but um, there are when, when you're operating on patients who are 120, 130 kilos there's a whole lot of other things that come into it like you need special tables and uh, special ways to transfer patients and um, by the time we're seeing them they're on a normal table and um, we don't need any of those extra extra tools it's true yeah and we but you know luckily we you know work with a team that are really you know very cool about it all it's just routine for us and it's interesting I I do other general surgery like you know hernias and gallbladders and when people come in we're all a bit shocked because it's like oh there's not enough space yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh okay I guess I'll normal space that I'm get around all the stuff you mentioned you know how much I don't want to say popular but you know it's from the early numbers when you were training and it just wasn't even in the public conscience to now being you know around 100,000 over the last five years. Has the demographic shifted much or have you noticed a change or any trends in who comes to see you? That's a really interesting question. I was thinking about this the other day and I must pull out my numbers, but I don't know if it's because I'm a female surgeon, but when I first started, I'd say 95% of my patients were female. Yeah. And mainly women around, you know, in their 30s, around childbearing years, maybe into their 40s. Um, these days I'm seeing more men come through. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know, I feel like the men send the women first as this sort of advance guard <laughs> to see how it goes and then if they go... Same well, here, same here. Then they, then they, then they come. They sort of, and also I think, you know, in the early days there was a bit of stigma around choosing weight loss surgery that it was an easy way out. Yeah. And, um, and in some ways I think bariatric surgeons were thought a bit like... Um, fish oil, were those snake oil salesmen from, you know, the olden days. But I think as we've collected the data and shown the worth of the surgery, it's gained more acceptance as well. Yeah. Um, I think women always worry about their weight more than men do. Not always, but I suppose always is the wrong word to use. But I think women certainly are more aware of their weight and the impact their weight has on their health, whereas I feel like men tend to wait until the weight has had an impact on their health. So men I tend to see tend to be quite a lot sicker. They've already got the diabetes or the heart disease and all the kidney failure and that's what's triggered them to say, okay, I'm finally going to do something about my weight. I'm going to get serious. Whereas the women tend to be um, more sort of, I guess, getting in there before they develop those things and that may just reflect societal pressures on women as well and how we expect women to look. Definitely. I think there's a lot to say on that. But that's really interesting that that that's kind of the health status of men. I would say that's the same here. I mean, obviously there's a lot more pressure on women to look a certain way um, and so they come in to see us. We They do obviously come in for like a lot of health reasons. Like, you know, they we have a lot of postpartum mums and people who are in pain from breasts and everything. Whereas, yeah, men, I think it's almost exclusively when 
you know, they're in pain or like they've lost a lot of weight and it's causing an issue in their life, that loose skin. Is that fair? Or their wife has had the surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was fine. So that is true. It's okay for them now. You saying that about there used to be a stigma, I think that stigma is very much still alive and kicking. I think we did a um, story the other day because, mm. you know, we same thing. It's like, well, couldn't they have just gone to the gym? And it's like, well, you can't exercise away nine kilos of loose skin. Actually, that's not always possible. Um, And the kind of comments that people were coming through Mm. that people had said to them were gobsmacking. And I think especially we've had quite a few people on the podcast who've had weight loss surgery and they've pretty much universally said that they got way more judgment for that surgery, that they were taking the easy way out, Mm. that – couldn't they just go to the gym and stop eating? It's not that hard. Have have you noticed that people are still kind of have that attitude coming into you? Like is there still some level of shame or embarrassment when they come in? Yeah, sadly I think people still feel quite ashamed um, that they can't keep the weight off and I think that's why it's so important to establish that rapport with people and let them know you understand how hard it is. You know, it's... It's really, really hard to keep weight off. The only 3% of people can keep it off and they're basically the obsessive compulsives amongst us, you know, people who turn weight loss into their profession. So the people who go into the biggest loser house and lose all that weight and become a fitness guru so that all they do every day is calorie count Mm -hmm. and exercise because the only way to keep weight off into the long term is to restrict yourself to about 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day. That's three um, little entree-sized meal a day exercise vigorously at least five times a week and that's not exercising at the gym while you're reading a magazine that's exercising to the point you can't breathe for an hour five times a week and having an action plan for the days where you've put on even half a kilo meaning that you're severely caloric restricts on those days so that's a lot of energy to put into something yeah and most of us just don't have the time and energy to do that um i think obesity is still one of the only diseases it's okay to stigmatize yeah um you know we don't stigmatize people for depression anymore you know that's there's been some really great breakthroughs but when I was in when I was young it was like I oh, just put yourself out of it yeah. you know go for a walk go for a walk get the dog off your back or whatever they say um now we recognize there's a hormonal aspect to it it's very complex and people have a lot more empathy to people with mental health care issues now than they've ever had before and I keep hoping that if we keep talking about the science and the reality for people that it will get better I think there has been some progress in that we do now start to see more acceptance of different body types and less body shaming um, which is a good thing Um, I just hope it flows through to an acceptance that obesity is a disease Mm. and it's a disease that needs to be taken seriously so that we can avoid a lot of these serious health concerns like diabetes like heart disease like stroke if we could just tackle obesity up front then maybe we would avoid a lot of these things into the future or if people already have them, help them to treat that before it gets to a stage where it threatens their life. So I always say to my patients, they're the bravest people I know because they're brave enough to have looked at all the different options. They've all tried absolutely everything. I think maybe once in my career have I had someone come in who said, you know, I've never bothered to try to lose weight before I just thought I'd come to you. (laughs) Uh, Surgery rightly should be and is the, the last the last option for people Mm. and they are brave enough to come in and talk see me in the first place spend time talking about their weight which is really hard for people to talk about 
people get quite emotional thinking about it. Sometimes it brings up sort of things that have happened to them in their past, like abuse or other aspects that might sort of be playing into it. And then they embark on a lifelong journey that we have to then support them through. And that's, again, anyone who's thinking about that surgery needs to be sure that the people they're going to see are offering them this real what we call multidisciplinary care where they've got the support of counsellors, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, dietitians, obviously, and whoever else they might need. I was going to ask, is it typically done in tandem with mental health care? We don't do a psychological assessment on everyone at baseline, but we do have psychologists that we work very closely with. And if people already have a psychiatrist and a psychologist, I ask them to get sign-off from their team because often in the first, particularly the first eight weeks, people can feel really flat after this surgery and we think it might be because the gut hormones change a little bit plus they're not eating as much and they often have a bit of bias remorse like what have I done to myself and then they kind of turn the corner and start to feel better. Um, With the, um, you know, down the track, the sadly the one disease that um, seems not to necessarily be impacted is true depression and the, the rate of suicide after bypass in particular and particularly in men seems to be a little higher in people who've had bypass. Oh, wow. And no one really understands why. Mm. It could be a gut hormone thing again because when we reroute mm. the bowel, we change hormones and the appetite and the mood centre sit right next door to each other in the brain. So anything that affects your appetite has an impact on your mood. Right. But it could also be that sometimes people have different expectations of what weight loss surgery is going to deliver them and they feel, you know, even though they've done well with their weight loss, they can feel they've, in inverted commas, failed because... They haven't got the job of their dream. They haven't mm. met the girl of their dreams. They haven't, yeah. you know, done, you know, they haven't partnered. They haven't done the things that they thought would change. Yeah. And so then they feel, you know, bad about themselves. So it's a it's a horrible sort of statistic and it's something that we're sort of actively trying to research to see if we can see if we can make that one better. Yeah. Kudos to you f- with all the research that you've you've done in bringing sort of some science to this area that was, you know, obviously in need and hopefully is going to benefit people going forward and, and make it something that is, um, you know, more uh, mainstream. Um, what do you see as sort of the next five to ten years in, in this space? I think our techniques will continue to get better. I think we'll refine the procedures. I think... There will be some more endoscopic, so things that are done through the camera down your throat mm-hmm. um, approaches. There's a few different ver- um, different ones at the moment. I don't think I'd run out to have any of them just now. But <laughs> often, you know, once things get started, you know, you get a bit of momentum and innovation follows and better instruments come along. I think there's going to be some really exciting medications coming out um, in the next year or two that will help people lose wow. substantial amounts of weight. But people then have to see it's not a quick fix. It's a bit like being on a, a blood pressure tablet. You then really have to commit to taking it for the rest of your life mm, yeah. to help keep the weight off. And I think, you know, there is things like the robotic surgery. So the approach we take to it's going to get better. Um, I think there's just an opportunity to do what we already do so much better. And I think one exciting thing we're doing through our registry is we're going to start collecting the patient experience outcomes because at the moment we collect weight loss yeah, and we collect, right. you know, whether or not they've had a side effect. But we don't know, you know, what the patient's experience is. And is they it really success if you've stuff. lost 100 kilos but you vomit every day? You know, yeah. so um, 
we we want to start collecting that patient experiential information and then maybe use the patient experience to drive what the next innovations should look like so that we measure outcomes that are important to our patients because at the end of the day that's why we're doing this yeah you um, mentioned we've had so many people come in here who talk about how much any kind of weight loss surgery has transformed their life maybe you know given them more time to be fitted with their kids or like giving them the opportunity to start a family do you have any patients whose stories have kind of stuck with you after you've performed surgery there's so many that you know a lot of women who come in who've really struggled to get pregnant and they're some of the most joyful patients because you know they've tried everything and it hasn't worked and they often accidentally fall pregnant in that first year when I tell them not to (laughs) because they think they're infertile and their fertility comes back and that's just such a joy for them and their families and everyone. Um, We did a trial a few years ago where we you're talking about a young man who'd had a band and we did these group of teenagers and it was a um, was done through the Royal Children's Hospital as a trial and you know we saw kids that were refusing to go to school going to school graduating finishing high school becoming Mm. nurses becoming electricians you know getting on and getting a career and a life and you know I still look after a lot of those kids 20 day 20 years later they're now and they're sort of having kids of their own yeah that's Mm. been incredibly satisfying yeah um we've had some you know really fan just lovely every story actually is lovely because everyone will tell you something that's good unfortunately about 12 percent of people don't lose a significant amount of weight and that can be because people have had unrealistic expectations and thought they're going to just be able to keep doing what they're doing and magically lose weight which yeah. of course we can't this is just a tool to help you le- eat less and exercise and you, then you need to do a bit of exercise on the other side mm. of the equation um and we've also ha- had people that have tried their hardest and you know just not lost weight and then people where it turns out they've you know had some sort of abuse or some sort of childhood trauma yeah. and they'd been sort of un- subconsciously i guess protecting themselves and sometimes partners can sabotage too because they feel vulnerable when the partner sort mm. of loses weight, becomes a bit more confident yeah. and they lose the power in that relationship so they start bringing home chips and chocolates and lollies that will slide wow. through. Wow. So those kind, those sort of situations are, you know, are sad and they're, they're difficult to work through um, but it's important to help people do the best they can do yeah. um, under all circumstances. So again, you know, not everyone gets that amazing success story but I think yeah. most people find that they get some benefit from mm. the surgery. We've had patients in here and they were talking kind of um, just candidly about their how, you know, they had weight loss surgery and then they lost a lot of weight and then how much that, you know, shifted their dynamic and then their partner also had the surgery and then – and so just kind of working through that shifting just dynamic and how you interact with each other and then, you know, what's important and those kind of things changed and they said it was very much always a learning curve with kind of every step that they took, which I was like, that's – very true. I think it would be tough when you've set a standard at some point and then... Yeah. And even up. in friendship groups you see it because yeah. there's often sort of the friend that carry, the, the friend with obesity or the, you know, she's she or he, but it's typically women that I see, um, they suddenly then, you know, start attracting more attention and yeah. that can create issues within friendship groups. So it's complex and that's where our psychologists have been just so amazing because... You know, people then often stress eat or subconsciously start to eat because they're not sure how to deal with it. Yeah. And so, you know, working with a psychologist who's skilled with, say, cognitive behavioural therapy or psychotherapy to help with through those issues is really important. So, again, I think people, when they choose this surgery, it's not just about choosing a good surgeon, it's about choosing a team that you feel comfortable yeah. reaching out to. 
I was just, so just to um, bring it all together. Uh, if there was someone who was considering going down this path, what what advice would you give them? I think um, go and talk to your GP and the GPs will usually give you really good advice these days. I think people are much more educated around it. I think Mm. 20 years ago, a lot of GPs hadn't really heard about the surgery, whereas Mm. now I think people are starting to understand it. So definitely go and talk to your GP. I'd make sure you feel that you absolutely tried everything else because you need to be satisfied that when you undertake an operation that you have, um, you know, tried tried your very best and that it, if anything was to go wrong, you can justify it that, you know, this was something that you really thought through and it wasn't a rushed decision. And then, um, you know, your GP will often be able to suggest who's a good surgeon to go and see. The internet's there. I'd just be a little <laughs> bit cautious because um, people who tend to get really super involved in the internet either have strong views one way or the other. They're either yeah. totally advocate or totally against. And there's a lot of judgment out there. You know, I was shocked. I was um, interviewed by the Herald Sun, I think, for about the waiting lists for bariatric surgery in public because there's very long waiting lists. And mm. um, then the comments that came back on that was a bit oh, like well, what you were describing, yeah. you know, a bit vitriolic. So, yeah, you know, I, I guess just be careful with the internet is what yeah. I would say. Um, if you've had friends or you've know someone that's had one, often talking to someone who's done the surgery is a great thing in terms of peer support. Yeah. And there are some trusted websites, so the ANSMOS, so the Australia and New Zealand Metabolic and Obesity Surgery Society, their website is very good, and the International Federation for Surgery for Obesity and Metabolic Disorders is very good. You'll get some very good um, information on those um, those websites that's peer-reviewed and is, you know, fairly impartial, I think, even though they're from obesity surgery societies. Yeah. Mm. Perfect. We'll link those in our show notes. Is there anything you wanted to add? No, look, I'm just so thrilled to be, have the opportunity to chat today. I hope I haven't talked too much. No, you <laughs> never talk too much, and, um, my God. No, and, you know, as I say, it's been it, – it's, when you look back, you sort of think, I never thought this was where I was going to be, but I'm kind of glad it's where I've ended up. Yeah. And I've been really glad to be able to go along part of the pathway with, you know, friends and colleagues like Richard because um, it is important for our patients to have that – Having that sort of seamless pathway, I think, makes a, a really big difference. Mm. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I think your patients sound very lucky to have somebody <laughs> who sounds so understanding and warm, I think, at a time that would be very, very scary. You sound like the perfect person. Oh, nobody's the perfect <laughs> <laughs> That's what a perfect person would say. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And, yeah, we'll um, link everything that you said into our show notes so people can find it if they need Otherwise, have a great day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Wendy. If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics, so send your suggestions through to us on IG at replasticsurgery. That's all for today and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.